0: Welcome to 1867 and all that. Season 2, episode 24. What does it all mean? We have done it. We've reached the end of season 2 and the actual title here of the podcast, 1867. So now what? Well, at the end of season 1, I posed a, a series of questions to make sense of it all, and I'm going to do the same thing here to ponder the meaning of everything we've covered this season. The questions are, what just happened, why, and so what. Okay, so let's, let's start with the what. What do the series of events we've laid out here, ranging from the early 1850s up to 1867, what do they add up to? Remember, we started back in episode one with the passionate and perhaps foolhardy Alessandro Gavazzi, the former priest turned anti-Catholic impresario, being chased from the rostrum of a church in Quebec City and then proceeding upriver to another speech, to riots, and to the killing of people on the streets of Montreal. It does always seem to be Montreal, doesn't it? Burning down Parliament, signing annexation manifestos, and then engaging in wild religious riots. From Gavazzi, we follow as the reform coalition of Baldwin and Lafontaine slowly fell apart in the early 1850s, and was replaced by mid-decade by a more conservative coalition, eventually headed up by John A. MacDonald and Georges Etienne Cartier. We watched the rise of the radical American-style clear-grit movement in Canada West, and in particular, with each passing year, as Upper Canada's population increasingly surpassed that of Lower Canada, the calls for representation by population. They wanted an end to the system, which gave equal representation for Canada East and Canada West, uh, and, and, as George Brown came to call it, to French domination. They wanted rep by pop, a, a thoroughly democratic idea, but one which pleased one section of the province much more than the other. The Grits and George Brown had big ideas, but they also struggled to build that one structure which was absolutely essential for political power in the Canadas, a national coalition that bridged the French-English-Protestant-Catholic divide. Brown and his lower Canadian counterpart managed it but once in 1858 before the infamous double shuffle maneuver of Johnny MacDonald brought them down. Other than that at that one moment, Brown was a governmental impossibility. At the same time, Irish Catholic immigration had muddied the waters of the Canadas Pushing the question of religious Catholic schooling onto the political agenda, where it almost yearly divided assemblies and parties, there were more murders of poor Robert Corrigan, and then the legal execution of the Aylwards, husband and wife, dropped on the noose side by side. Each section of the Canadas could latch onto these horrific anecdotes as examples, as proof, absolute proof. They felt that the province could not provide their own particular group with justice. Throughout all of these years, political success lay in two opposite directions, sometimes granted to those who exacerbated tensions, who stoked the flames of resentment, and used this hot anger to win election and fame, at least in their own ridings. On the other side were those who tried to soothe tensions, dampen down the flames of resentment, and to build across cultural differences. For most of this era, these were the politicians who gathered under the umbrella of the conservative party of John A. Macdonald and Georges Etienne Cartier. It could also include someone like Darcy McGee, who wanted to build uh, in Irish Catholic pride, but also to moderate those feelings and mingle them with a a feeling of attachment to British North America. All of this made governing the Canadas a difficult task. John A. Macdonald was a member of the Orange Order, that fiercely loyalist Irish Protestant institution that overseas was treated more like a barely legal paramilitary organization. When the Prince of Wales visited in 1860s, the Orange Order almost ruined the Prince's visit. Yet there was Macdonald with the Prince, still a member of the Orange Order, but also in government in a coalition with Catholics. It required a great deal of flexibility to maintain political authority in the Canadas of the 1850s and 1860s. It could sometimes seem like the divisions were too much. By the early 1860s, another John MacDonald rose to power. Remember him, John Sandfield MacDonald? promising to make the system work as it was intended to, at least as he saw it, via the double majority. By this, he meant ensuring that each section would have a final say in its own affairs, but that they would come together to deal with more general matters. The sandfield MacDonald government was riven with its own contradictions and especially fell apart by its own hypocrisy when it forced Catholic separate schooling on Upper Canada despite the stated wishes of a majority of Upper Canadian members. So much for the double majority. Back in came John A. MacDonald and his group. But then he couldn't manage much of a government either, and he was just about to be brought down, forcing yet another election when something new happened. There seemed no end to the revolving doors of government in the Canadas. There seemed no end, that is, until George Brown, recently remarried with a magnanimous cast of mind and ambition in his eye, suggested that he just might have a solution. What could happen if he, the governmental impossibility, the man of principle who refused to work with slippery men like MacDonald, what would happen if he agreed to support a coalition government with a single purpose in mind. That would be to build a larger union of the British American colonies. This was the escape hatch, the way out of what seemed like a claustrophobic tunnel without exit, and it was provided by the most unlikely of figures, the man who had previously been almost entirely concerned with digging deeper into the ground, oblivious of the need for air. We know, of course, where things went from there, from one conference to another, first Charlottetown, then Quebec, and then finally, after the Fenian raids and a big New Brunswick adventure, to the London Conference and the British North America Act of 1867. Okay, if that covers the events, there's still the issue of characterizing what this was. What happened here and why is it commemorated every 1st of July on what we now call Canada Day? The most important place to start, I would suggest, is to explain what did not happen. First, and most importantly, this is not the date of Canadian independence. It's not our 4th of July. It's astounding how many people and sources, official, educated, institutional, get this wrong. On the 30th of June, 1867, Canada was a part of the British Empire. Two days later, on the 2nd of July, 1867, Canada remained a part of the British Empire. Indeed, Canada remained a part of the empire into the 20th century until we began to call the empire the Commonwealth. And then Canada remained a part of the Commonwealth. Of course, it does so today. So no, Confederation did not create Canada as an independent country. This matters profoundly, I'd suggest, because perhaps the single most distinct fact of Canadian history, the one element which makes us different from any other nation in the Americas, is that we did not revolt. We did not break with our colonial past and pull ourselves into independent nationhood. There is no single day to celebrate Canadian independence. And if I had to pick one, I would not pick the 1st of July, 1867. The Fathers of Confederation, all those men who met at Charlottetown, Quebec and London, bent over backward to emphasize that they wanted to remain tied to Britain, at least in some important affairs. They saw themselves as profoundly British. In fact, if in December of 1866, you traipsed away from the London Conference and headed over to the British House of Commons, you would have found more men keen on Canadian independence amongst the British politicians than you'd have found amongst the British North Americans gathered at the Westminster Palace Hotel. This does not mean that the fathers of confederation were subservient colonials tugging their forelocks and begging direction from their betters. They were building a nation and they insisted on deciding their own affairs on the rights and benefits of responsible government. It was, after all, British North Americans who made the deal, who created the union. They just didn't believe that this nation they were creating was independent of the British empire and they didn't want it to be. They were both British and Canadian, and proud of it. Okay, so, not a new nation. There's one more not. This also wasn't the birth of Canadian democracy. Now, we dealt with this in season one, so I'll just offer a reminder here. British North Americans had already won the version of democratic governance that they wanted, the version which gave them control over their own affairs and the power to reform that governance. Some had rebelled in the 1830s, fighting for Republican models of democracy. Those rebellions failed, and they failed both because the British forces had suppressed the rebellions, but they also failed because local British North Americans in their thousands had rejected them. This was more the case in Upper Canada than Lower Canada. But even in the lower colony, by the early 1840s, the political reformers came to be dominated by those who wanted to create in British North America a Westminster-style form of governance. And by the end of the 1840s, they got what they wanted. They won responsible government. It wasn't nearly as democratic as it would later become. There were no secret ballots, and there were still property restrictions on the franchise. But over the course of the 19th century and into the 20th century, British North Americans themselves would reform their own franchise because they had won, through responsible government, the power to control their own destiny. Confederation changed none of this. If we want to find our democratic heroes, the people most responsible for celebrating Canadian autonomy, we need to look first to Joseph Howe, a Nova Scotian who vehemently opposed Confederation. So yes, there's some irony to this story. Okay, that's two things that Confederation was not. So then what did happen over the 1850s that culminated in 1867? How should we now understand what happened in Confederation? Well, how about calling it what British North Americans called it at the time, the birth of a dominion? Maybe even what they wanted to call it, the creation of the Kingdom of Canada. This means that we actually think historically and accurately about what our history is and and was, and not what subsequent generations wish that it was. The confederation of the colonies of British North America, or three of them anyway, created a, a new, bigger colony, out of which would emerge, eventually, the country we now know to be Canada. Confederation was one step along an evolutionary path to the creation of Canada. It wasn't even the first step, and it certainly wasn't the last. What makes the Canadian story distinct is that we evolved slowly towards independent nationhood. We turned our backs on revolution and we maintained our connection to our colonial forebears. The steps from colony to nation are many and often not that thrilling or exciting, at least if you think nationhood comes from violent confrontation. In fact, one of the next key steps would be uh, the negotiations in 1871 over the Treaty of Washington between Britain and the United States. Canada's Prime Minister, Johnny Macdonald served as one of the British commissioners negotiating the treaty, a symbolic step up for at least some Canadians uh, in foreign policy at any rate, though Macdonald felt thwarted at every turn in the negotiations. But fighting over halibut with the Americans is hardly the stuff of grand national origin myths. There were more stages, notably Canada's contribution to the Great War, its presence, albeit in a limited fashion at the negotiations for the Treaty of Versailles. There was Mackenzie King's insistence in the Chenac Crisis of 1922 that the Canadian Parliament, and not British Dictat, would decide if the Dominion went to war. Most notably, there was the Statute of Westminster of 1931. This, if anything, was the real moment of Canadian independence. A statute granting equality of status to Canada and the other dominions in the British Commonwealth of Nations. There were more, even less seemingly notable moments, the ending of legal appeals to what had been the highest court, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council in England. And then, of course, finally, the patriation of the Constitution in 1982, in which Canadian governments finally decided that they could agree on a way to amend our Constitution, removing this authority from the British Parliament. A power, it needs to be said, that the British had no desire to still hold by the 1980s. All of these steps, many of which many Canadians might not have ever heard of, are part of a distinctly Canadian evolution into nationhood. Confederation was one such step. Important, yes, but only one. So, Confederation then was about the creation of the Dominion, a union of some and eventually all of the British colonies in North America into their next phase of evolution. The second key element to note about what happened, about what exactly the fathers created, is to say that they created a decidedly mixed beast I can't think of a better term for this at the moment. It's a, a two-headed hydra with decidedly mixed and sometimes even conflicting sense of what mattered. This has, of course, everything to do with federalism and the very different ideas of federalism that were included within the new dominion. Confederation both brought British and North Americans together into the new dominion and into the new parliament at Ottawa, while at the same time it separated them it divided them into separate provinces and depending on who you asked it was either the union or the separation that mattered most it was either the creation of a new powerfully mostly unified nation or the separation of peoples into their own provincial spaces you could find delegates at the conference who held quite distinct and conflicting visions of what they were doing you'll find plenty of experts over the years later claiming that the British-North American deal was always meant to create a, for example, a strong central government, and then others who insist the opposite, that it was established to create a decentralized federation with two equal levels of government. Both sides can find compelling evidence for their case in the deal itself and in the subsequent reflections of those who were present. The point, I would say, isn't to pick a side. They're both right. That's because the delegates elided their conflicts. They let them be, assuming that time and the future would allow one side to win out in the end. John A. Macdonald believed that he needed to concede to a federal union. The union of the colonies would not work without it. French Canadians would never agree to a legislative union of the colonies. But Macdonald also believed that in time, possibly quite soon, the diminutive provincial governments would wither away into insignificance. By granting the national government the reserve powers and the powers of disallowance and control over the matters of government which mattered most, finance, trade, the militia, all the ambitious people would go to Ottawa and that is where power would reside. On the other hand, Georges Etienne Cartier and the French Canadians felt that federalism and continued federalism mattered most. In Confederation, they had won separation from Upper Canada, what became Ontario. They would still need to deal with George Brown and his ilk at Ottawa, but at least in matters of culture, of education, of religion, they could control their own affairs. To be fair, George Brown shared in some ways a similar vision, happy to be away from French quote-unquote domination of French Catholics, for example, imposing their wishes on Upper Canada. Now both sides could make the claim about what they had created and both could point to evidence in the negotiations and the final deal which they felt proved they were right. I would suggest that what they really did was to create a nation built on contradictions, a decidedly mixed beast. It's not surprising that the problems of federalism of debates over which powers reside where have been so essential to canadian history okay so that's the what happened not independence not the birth of a democracy instead it was one stage on an evolutionary path to dominion status and beyond and the creation of a very very federally divided nation now why did this happen and Why at just this moment in this particular way? The most important answer should be obvious by now. It was the Canadians. Many British North Americans supported the idea of a wider union in general, but it was only in the province of Canada that Confederation came to seem like a desperately needed solution to a real and pressing problem. By the early 1860s, the colony was riled up with more than a decade, and really longer, of strife between religious and linguistic groups. Riled up by controversies of egregious murders, instances of injustice, of religious schooling denied. If you were Catholic or if you were a certain kind of Protestant Upper Canadian, you would say religious schooling forced upon you. All of these divisions may have been par for the course, certainly not dramatically worse than in many other nations. But the difference was the constitution, the rules which governed the system. This was the bizarre constitution foisted upon the province in 1841, where each section received an equal number of seats in the assembly. The changing demographics of the 1850s meant that English and Protestant Canada was only going to be more and more dissatisfied and French Catholic Canada more and more defensive. The divisions plus the demographics were then multiplied by the Constitution to create an equation that equaled near-perpetual instability. As coalition followed coalition, each new government seeming to come with a shrinking majority and an even more tenuous hold on authority, it began to seem like some kind of change was needed. This was the context that led some political figures to think that they needed a way out and Confederation offered them one possible escape hatch from the Canadian predicament. Okay, so the Canadians desperately wanted it, or at least some did. What else? Why else did Confederation happen at just this time? There are two more interrelated external answers, reasons that come from outside British North America, but quite close by. And this has everything to do with the United States of America and Great Britain. First, the Americans. The Americans were the adrenaline of confederation, the fight or flight hormone that kicked everything into action. British North Americans enjoyed the reciprocity treaty, the intense trade between the two areas which they had won back in 1854, but which by the early 1860s it seemed clear they were going to lose. As the American Civil War dragged on, it seemed less and less likely that the Americans would renew free trade. This spurred British North Americans into action to try to find other markets for trade, to find other investment capital or other opportunities. If not north-south, then perhaps east-west. This is the oldest story of Canadian history, replayed in different guises in the 1911 Reciprocity Treaty election, in the secret but stalled negotiations for free trade at the end of the Second World War, in the famous 1988 free trade election. We need and fear the Americans, our largest trading partner. In the 1860s, Britain still, of course, loomed at large, but America was calling, except it seemed they were about to turn their backs on reciprocity. But if trade can seem a bit too abstract, there was also the threat of war and invasion. All through these years, the possibility of armed conflict with the United States, or at least with some Americans, like, say, the Irish-American Fenians, well, this propelled the Confederation process to its conclusion. The Trent Crisis of 1861 led Britain sending troops to North America to prepare for war. Only the Christmas Day release of the British captives from a Boston jail let the air out of that military trial balloon. But the Trent crisis wasn't alone. There was the Chesapeake affair in Halifax, the St. Albans raids in 1864, and there have been other similar raids and scares of lesser renown that I haven't even mentioned on the show. And finally, there was the Fenian scare of 1866. Just at the moment when it seemed as if Confederation was stalled, along came the Fenians to ignite fears of invasion from the south. There's nothing like an external enemy to unite a people and that's certainly what happened to British North Americans in the 1860s. The threats from America provided the bonding glue that allowed them to think of themselves as united in their Britishness, as being different from the Americans, and as needing to unite together in mutual defense. Now, it's not obvious that militarily it really mattered. It's not clear why it united British North America, would be any better at defending itself against Phinean incursions than each colony backed up by Britain. But these more prosaic critiques don't seem to have mattered. This was more symbolic. The American threat pushed British North Americans together. Then there was also the British themselves. By the 1860s, it was becoming increasingly common to think that Britain needed to slowly remove itself from North America, allowing its colonial subjects to govern and defend themselves. This was the logical follow-on from the granting of responsible government at the end of the 1840s and into the 1850s. It was spurred on by financial pressures. Empires cost a great deal of money. Garrison troops cost money, and each Trent crisis, or something like it, increased costs. Better for the British North Americans to take on the burden of defense themselves. And this is, by and large, what happened. It's no coincidence that the last British garrison left British North America only four years after Confederation. Yes, Britain retained naval bases at Halifax on the east coast and Esquimo on the west. But by allowing Confederation, Britain was slowly removing itself from a costly military burden. This did not mean that in the event of war, Britain would not defend her dominion. But by removing regular garrisons and offloading the cost to the dominions, Britain was also sending a signal to the Americans that they had nothing to worry about. For years now, Americans had been asserting the Monroe Doctrine. This doctrine held that European powers had no right to establish colonies in the Western Hemisphere. This was one of the reasons why the British had been reluctant to call the new nation a kingdom. The creation of the Dominion of Canada was part of a British move out of North America and a consolidated way of thinking about its empire. Trade and people would continue to flow, no doubt. And by the end of the century, it would actually be Canadian military forces that would move in the other direction, going outwards to fight for Britain. Yes, the British would play a military role in fighting the first real resistance in 1870, and we'll get to that next season. But in the 1880s, Canadians would go to Egypt and the Sudan, and then there would be South Africa to fight the Boers in the next decade, and of course, the Great War in 1914. Individual British North Americans had of course always fought in Britain's wars, but in moving towards Confederation, Britain was signaling a move out of North America, and as we now know, it would be Canadians increasingly en masse who would go to fight for Britain, and increasingly for Canada itself, abroad. So why Confederation? Because the Canadians wanted it, the Americans pushed them to it, and the Brits were happy to benevolently watch it happen. There was also one more element, of course, the glory. Yes, it might seem looking back as if the whole moment of national creation in 1867 is far too prosaic and pragmatic, yet it's also clear that there was something in the whole process which caught the imagination both of the men in the room and often many others across the continent. No, it wasn't the fire and brimstone of survival and revolution, but the idea of uniting British North America appealed to the ambitions of many at the time not least the delegates who gathered in conference halls and dined together at the end of those long days, drinking champagne toasts and saluting the prospects of what might come. They would join the existing colonies, uniting them first politically and then with steel of the rail via the intercolonial railway. But they had far bigger plans to move westward and northward, to join up ultimately with British Columbia in the west and to purchase the Hudson's Bay Company lands in between, Now, they largely thought very little about the wishes of the indigenous inhabitants of those lands, assuming that the progress of British civilization in North America was all that mattered. This grand ambition of nation building, of empire building, increasingly on what they hoped would be an equal footing with Britain itself, this ambition spurred on the process of confederation itself, the dream of a nation from sea to sea. All right, so Now we've sorted out the what and the why, finally we can turn to maybe the best question of all, the most fun. So what? Why does or why did any of this matter? I have three answers for you. First, Confederation matters because it made a certain kind of function and dysfunctional federalism part of the Canadian state DNA. It locks it into our operating instructions from the outset. The Confederation Deal established in 1867 built into the Canadian state a set of contradictory instructions and competing visions about what Canada is. It both was and was not centralist, assuming a dominant national government. It both was and was not decentralist, assuming a weak federal structure with autonomous levels of government equally sovereign in their own jurisdiction. A key feature of Canadian politics has then always subsequently meant constantly asking, which level of government handles this situation? This has shown up again and again in Canadian history. In the face of the Depression in the 1930s, for example, FDR in the United States won election and quickly initiated economic reforms to deal with the crisis. In Canada, Mackenzie King got elected, and what did he do? Well, he established a royal commission on federalism to work out which level of government could deal with the problem. Now, Kennedy eventually got an unemployment insurance scheme, but only after years of talking about, what else, federalism. This has had positive and negative consequences for the country. Clearly, if you wanted a strong national response to the Depression or other national crises, it was a problem, inhibiting Canada from taking quick action. And for example, whatever you feel about federalism, it is a kind of embarrassment that Canada can have free trade agreements with other countries, but still not have genuine free trade between our own provinces. Having said that, Canada's federal structure also prevents homogeneity. It allows for local variation. It allows for different provinces to follow distinct paths. And yes, I'm definitely looking at you, Quebec. The biggest check on federal government power is often not the official opposition in Ottawa, but premiers of other parts of the country who disagree with federal action. In many ways, the provinces balanced national power. One recent book on confederation described the process well. It was both about autonomy and inclusion. Leave me alone and, oh yes, also include me too. We're a passive-aggressive country right from the outset. Okay, So that's the first so what answer. Second, Confederation matters because it constitutionalized a kind of cultural accommodation that had already been a key feature of life in Canada. That is, British policy had always been in theory to assimilate French Catholic Canada. That was the hope. And yet from the beginning in situation after situation, governors and colonial secretaries and local politicians had realized that what they really needed to do in practice was to work out pragmatic accommodations for the betterment of the colony. This was the case with the 1774 Quebec Act that granted religious and legal rights to French Catholics that in another world, the British would rather not have granted. It happened again after the Union of the Canadas in 1841, a move that was meant to be assimilationist, but which worked out in practice to require accommodating differences between the two Canadas. Now again in 1867, accommodation was the order of the day. The reason for Canada's federal structure was to provide French Canadians, and to a lesser extent some Maritimers, autonomy and a continued separate existence. As I mentioned above, this could create problems of its own, but it also built cultural accommodation, or at least some forms of it, certainly not all, into the structure of the nation. Canada was a country created, you might say, to accommodate difference. Okay, my third answer to the so what question builds off this last point. Confederation matters now largely because of one small, almost throwaway line in the British North America Act that few delegates gave much attention towards. This related to one cultural difference that most delegates at the conference thought would not continue to matter, the experience of indigenous peoples, those the British North America Act called Indians. Indigenous peoples were not invited to any of the constitutional conferences. Their exclusion reflected a series of assumptions, a paternalistic attitude by which delegates assumed they could make decisions for Indians. It reflected an assumption also that indigenous peoples would as nations fade away and cease to exist collectively. It also was based on an idea that only those with political power within assemblies mattered. The groups that needed to be accommodated as part of the negotiations were those who could influence responsible government. Without the vote and with very tiny numbers, indigenous peoples clearly didn't have this power. Now they weren't alone either. The Acadians for instance, also weren't represented at the conference. Though later, when their population numbers grew, Acadians would later come to count as one of the groups, especially in New Brunswick, who needed to be accommodated. But I don't mention Indigenous peoples just to focus on their exclusion, something many others have pointed out. I instead want to draw your attention to the one tiny but possibly significant way in which they did show up in Confederation. I'm riffing here on something the historian Christopher Moore has pointed out, but I'm taking it in a slightly different direction. This is that in section 91, the list of federal powers. Section 91 granted the federal government power over, quote, Indians and lands reserved for the Indians. It shows up right after copyright and right before naturalization and aliens. It's easy to miss, I would say, the significance of this line. No other peoples are the direct responsibility of the national government except for non-Canadians, aliens that is, those who want to enter Canada. And this is surely significant, for it suggests that the delegates saw indigenous peoples as a group set apart, as quite distinct from others, as almost sort of foreign. And this surely makes sense, for British North America had treated indigenous peoples as coming from quite distinct political entities. The British had retained control until quite recently, even after the granting of responsible government, of the whole process of treaty making, of forming relationships with indigenous peoples and signing treaties with them to, from the British North American perspective, gain access to land. This is gonna matter profoundly in the years immediately following Confederation as the new nation spread westward. Almost the first thing that's gonna happen is that the government will begin negotiating treaties across the western lands of North America, and we're still very much considering today what these treaties mean and what the earlier treaties signed by the British and the French mean as well. By placing Indians under federal jurisdiction, the Constitution of 1867 signaled a continu- continuation rather of this treaty making process. Most of the delegates, if they considered these issues, assumed that the Indian nations with whom they were dealing would eventually fade away. Individuals would be assimilated into the broader national whole. But this is not what happened. And it doesn't seem to be what many indigenous peoples themselves believed. We're gonna come to all of these relationships next season when we turn westward. I simply wanna mark here how significant the small acknowledgement in the British North America Act truly was. It's worth pondering what would have happened had the government not granted this power to the federal government. What it would have meant should the delegates have simply assumed that those they saw as Indians were merely British North Americans like any others, whose relationship with the government for education and health and other services would come from the local governments. I'd hazard a guess as to say that the distinct position granted to Indigenous peoples under the Constitution has mattered profoundly. The government would proceed to enact a host of coercive policies, the Indian Act and the residential schools, most notable among them. Yet, ironically, this distinct position granted to those who would be called status Indians is partly responsible for the continued separate existence of Indigenous peoples today. It's partly why, in 1969, when the Pierre Trudeau government promised to eliminate the Indian Act and its coercive and paternalistic bureaucracy, The main resistance came from indigenous peoples themselves who wanted to maintain their separate legal existence within the nation, to be not just like the other citizens of the provinces. Okay, on these points we'll talk much more next season. So that's it. The what, why, and so what of Confederation and British North America in the 1850s and 1860s. Why did any of this matter? You can come up with alternate reasons, but my answers at this point are because of the weirdly disjointed character it gave Canada, its legacy of accommodating difference, and finally the separate existence it enshrined into the constitution to Indigenous peoples, a group who were, on the whole, excluded from the process altogether. We've now traced Canadian history from the 1830s, if you go back to season one, and the rebellions and the Canadas, through the fight over what representative government uh, would look like in British North America. In this early story, the huge victory and key moment came with the winning of responsible government, with Westminster-style democracy in the colonies. But this, of course, wasn't the end of the story. The colonies and most notably the united province of canada was riven with its own conflicts and stuck with a troublesome constitution this was the key pressure to find an alternate existence this is what ultimately started off the process of creating a union of the british north american colonies if i could say one more final thing of substance it would be this if you were today to, to decide which of these events to celebrate as a national beginning the union of the colonies to solve a Canadian problem, or the winning of democratic autonomy, which would you celebrate? Now, I've no problem with marking confederation, but to me, the responsible government story is at least equal and probably squeaks a little further ahead here. So perhaps we need to rethink exactly what it is we commemorate on Canada Day and find another day for this alternate celebration of our own democratic origins. Let's all spend more time thinking about Joseph Howe and the burning of Parliament in 1849 and the fact that Lord Elgin let the elected government in Canada have its way, as well as the great feats of negotiation that we saw in the many Confederation conferences. Okay, this is the end, but it's not quite the end. We'll be back next season as the British North Americans look westward and begin thinking about building an empire of their own. We have the Métis and Louis Riel, two separate armed conflicts in 1869 and 70 and 1885. There will be the process of treaty formation across the prairies and the, the policies enacted to assimilate Indigenous peoples. And even Joseph Howe isn't done, for he's going to show up in Red River of all places on one more of his rambles. In the shorter term, though, although season two is officially ended, I have a couple of small treats planned, separate bonus episodes to fill in the gaps between now and the start of season three. So keep an eye on your podcast feed for these. And finally, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.